Welcome back to Take a Moment. I'm Mari Yamaguchi. And I am Nathan Bennett. And today we're joined by some extraordinary leaders here at Genesis, uh, Chris Howe, Vice President of Professional Services. And Dan Rude, who is the Vice President of Product Marketing for Genesis. So we had a great conversation with both of them about we did. We did. tactics, team building, and what they've learned so far in their journey. You know, it was interesting. I read this little maxim earlier this week, and it talked about don't look for a job, look for a boss. And it's really interesting how these two guys have created their own unique styles of leadership. They probably couldn't be more different from each other and how they build a team, what they're looking for, but the result is the same. They both have highly successful teams that look up to them, respect them, and uh, I, I love hearing how the sausage is made a little bit. So we went into a lot of how you get to a team like that and how do you maintain that team and how do you provide that constant guidance and leadership. It's really, really valuable. Yeah, I love that analogy you used uh, during the interview about the bar of soap and not having to hold it too tight, but not holding it too loosely as well too, about having that creative freedom. And then also with Chris, he draws a lot of his uh, leadership background from his military experience as well. And both of them are very much the servant leadership. It really reminded me of my grandfather who um, was an executive uh, for a cosmetic company in, in Japan. And he used to always say, you know, I'd rather have my team love me and follow me versus my team fear me and follow me because I know that they're going to be able to do the right thing when they need to. That's great. I love that. I'd love to talk more about that. Let's have a whole episode about that, Mari. Yes, let's. <laughs> I think that would be outstanding. Um, but no, yeah, ab- absolutely. It's a really, really insightful look into what makes a good leader. Of course, there are lots of different styles of leadership. These are just two of the many styles, but I think exactly what you said, Mari, that servant leadership is really, really inspiring. It really does get uh, their team behind them. And uh, it's really a joy to talk to these guys. We had a great time. In fact, we had such a great time that we're splitting this episode into kind of two different episodes. So you'll hear the first part of our conversation this week, and then next week, we'll continue the conversation. So you're getting a two for one. Yeah, I love it. I love deals. I love deals too, and this is one of them. This is a twofer. Uh, So yeah, sit back, relax, and uh, we invite you to take a moment with us. I'm really interested about mentorship and those people that you uh, met early on in life, maybe when you were younger, that had a tremendous impact on you still today. Can you think of anybody from whatever it is, your family, past work experience? Chris, I know you were in the military. Um, Maybe it was a professor in college or somebody, a teacher in school. Is there somebody that you can think of that was a great mentor to you? I had this great uh, er, early run in my career. I lived in Seattle and I had opportunities to work at Amazon and Microsoft. And uh, I ended up taking a job at uh, a company, a little travel company called Expedia. Um, and there was a, uh, a boss there that I had named Bill Pless. And he was an amazing mentor to me uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. And, and the main was, was he, he recognized that I had some, uh, some talent 
and, and, and creative abilities. And he allowed me to explore those. Um, uh, I, 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 I cherish that because having somebody who saw you for who you were with your flaws and, you know, your immaturity and still allowing you to, to go a non-status quo route to try to come up with a better idea to persuade people in my case, like how do we persuade people to see this is a great product for you to buy? Um, and so he was definitely, I mean, I've had a lot, but he was definitely one that, that, that stood out in my life. Uh, and, and he was also an example that I didn't always, I didn't always take, but he was also an example of somebody who, um, you know, put their family first and, and had a really great work-life balance. But I think that just that person who saw you for who you were with all your foibles, and but saw talent and 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 helped you to explore that was really meaningful in that early part of my career. Chris, what about you? Yeah, I have to think about my time in the the military, where I I went to the military because I'd lacked a lot of discipline through through high school. I was bottom twenty five percent of my my class. Uh, rarely attended. I, I still don't know how I graduated. And I hope uh, my current company doesn't go back and check those records. I, do, I did pass college very easily, though, so I think that negates any high school challenges. Uh, but regardless, um, you know, being as rough around the edges as I was coming out of high school, going to the military, I was highly impacted by a, a number of uh, both uh, my leadership chain and then the leaders around me. And uh, one of the most influential was a first sergeant by the name of First Sergeant Lacombe. I was tasked to be his driver for one field exercise. And uh, he was making a conversation with me and just said, hey, are you taking any any college courses? And I said, well, I took one last semester, but I didn't take take one this semester because we had this field exercise and I didn't want to miss two weeks of classes. And he goes, oh, that's good. You'll probably never take another class again. And I was kind of taken aback. I thought he'd be like proud of me that I took a class last semester. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, it sounds to me like you're just making a bunch of excuses. And I said, well, what, what do you mean? He goes, did you even talk to a professor to see if they'd work with you while you were out? And uh, it, it really took me back that he, that he challenged me like that. But it also made me think, uh, and, and I've only strengthened this over the years, is uh, I'm really in control of my own destiny. And, and if I want something, I, I have to do it. And the, the excuses are just challenges that are part of the story that I overcame to get to, to where I got. So that, that, that lesson certainly to, um, for me individually had a lot of impact. And then uh, as a leadership and how I challenged my team, it's had a significant impact as well. Uh, Chris, how do you feel about taking risks? Um, I know from your military background, and thank you for your service, by the way, is there a sense in which you bring that into uh, your leadership style today? Absolutely. Um, you know, as uh, Dan was talking, I was reflecting and, and that approach is, is one that I definitely embrace. I, I summarize it as proceed until apprehended. And a lot of times uh, your folks are going to need stuff, uh, whether that's uh, tools for their job, uh, professional freedom, uh, some guidance, positional authority, just just someone to back them up. And I feel like I always do what I what I feel is in the best for, for them, because if we're taking care of the employees, um, you know, we're in, the, in turn taking care of our customers. So at times there can be, you know, best practices and processes and stuff that are in place that account for the, the 80 percent of 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 uh, types of situations that occur. And so when I feel something falls in that 20 percent where these processes and guidelines may uh, deter us from helping our employees, helping our customers. Uh, I have no no problem at all owning the, the decision making to uh, skate outside of those uh, 
best practices are guideline uh, and doing what I feel is in the best interest of our, our folks and our, and our customers. And uh, I always said, hey, I'll take the, the first hand slapping. Uh, and I think probably after that's a, a slap to the face. And then, I, and then I should learn after that, um, I hope. Hopefully. But Hopefully. yeah, totally, totally agree with Dan. And like I said, I summarize it as a proceed until apprehended. And that's huge for employees, right? To know that their leader has their back mm-hmm. so that they can go and, and like Dan said, dare to fail and dare to go outside some of the norms to really be more creative and kind of want to go back to you, Dan. How do you instill that in your teams now? I like to think that we build a team for failure. And by that, I mean trying to make an environment that the idea of trying something new that will perhaps fail is okay. Because we we do live in a, a, a pretty punitive corporate culture where the idea of failure is stigmatized. And for me, uh, it, you're never going to get to something creative or new or innovative without a great risk of failure. And so if you can instill that in the team as a leader to say, I am okay if you mess this up, like let's try not to mess it up twice if we can. But the idea of failure is paramount to my team to say that we want we want new ideas. And when you start creating a culture of people who are afraid to fail, mm-hmm. afraid to risk, then you start to go status quo. And status quo, particularly in a software in- industry, is death. Right. And and so trying to have some small part in building a culture of people that say, hey, I'm going to try something. It eh, This might not work. Being the, a leader to say, I am going to be okay with that. If, if you are putting your best effort forward and you mess up, like that's totally cool with me. I have no punitive bone in my body to say, let's punish that. Let's say, okay, we messed up. All right, let's what can we learn from it and what how can we, we move on? It? Yeah, another approach uh, I agree with is uh, one thing I emphasize is there there is no wrong or failure. There's just those opportunities to, to improve. So it's a data point, right? We tried this approach. It didn't work. What do we learn from it? How are we going to get better? Uh, those are, those are also actually awesome opportunities. You always want to hope that the impact of uh, that situation isn't going to be negative uh, from, a, from a perception standpoint. But certainly going out there and uh, picking your people up and saying, hey, there's, there's no failure or, or there's no wrong. There's an opportunity to learn, uh, assuming it's not malicious. Right. But okay. I, I believe everyone and this is one of my management philosophies that everyone wakes up in the morning to come to work to, to do their best. Uh, but at points in time, we're not our best. And so uh, as a leader, I take the responsibility to figure out why they're not their best. Do they not have the right training? Do they not have the right tools? Do they ha- not have the right guidance? Do they not have the right backbone? Are they not suited to be in that role? I mean, that's my responsibility to make all these assessments. And then based on the situation and the personality type, how do I, I coach or engage or work with that person to remove those obstacles and, and make them the best that they can be? And what I think is critical about that is trust, that when push comes to shove, that when something fails, that the team sees me as a person who is who is falling on the sword for them. And I think that I think you would agree, Chris. It's like if we're if you're going to ask a team to dare and to try something when it doesn't go well, it's your primary responsibility as a leader to say, I messed this up. It's that aspect of servant leadership that we've been hearing from so many of our guests as well, too, that are leaders. Yeah. And it's it's a it's a slippery slope, right? Because I've, I've worked with a lot of uh, you know peer peer leaders that almost coddle their teams too much. And I think that is as as negative as not supporting them. So 
you want to, you know, give them the, the freedom to, to do what's needed. Um, you know, you want to make sure that you set the, the right expectations uh, so that you don't get too deep uh, into uh, a potential ne negative situation. But, um, you know, you certainly don't want to always protect or, or defend your team because then you're missing out on the lessons learned or those opportunities to improve. So I think it's it's very important that uh, you, you as a leader or as a manager of direct reports don't feel it's your responsibility to just protect your people. I would say it's uh, spend more time doing what you need to do to figure out why they're why they're not at their best and then provide that that level of engagement to them. And, and I, I feel that you'll find that at no point in time is protecting or um, biasly defending them is, is in their best, uh, is, is, in, is uh, the best thing for them. It's like children and participation ribbons. <laughs> As you guys were talking, I remembered a um, kind of anecdote that I heard a pastor say one time, and he was actually talking about raising children and teenagers specifically. And he said, it's a soap bar in the shower. If you hold it too loosely, you'll drop it. If you hold it too tightly, it'll shoot out of your hand. There's got to be a nice balance of that soap bar. And it's kind of what I'm hearing from the two of you is you're finding that kind of sweet spot of leadership where they have the freedom to create, to dare, and even to fail but also they know that they're supported as well in their structure. And when we're talking about failure, one of the things that we like to ask, and it's not a, an original question with us, but I love it. Um, can you think of a favorite failure that you've had in your life? I don't have a specific one, doesn't come to mind. I, I grew up in a home with a dad who was constantly pushing this idea of going a different direction than the crowd. So it was, it's this very innate, instilled part of my entire being, I'm sure, um, which is why you pay for counseling to like unpack some of these uh, <laughs> ideas as you're, you know, you're getting close to 41. Um, but the one, one of the things that I'm, I'm starting to learn in the last few years, actually, is that thing that you hold up as being precious of being unique about you, which for me is, like going the different direction, like innately just rebelling to go the different direction is not always the right thing to do. And it's really been the last few years where you would take something from your playbook where your automatic response is to, they're all, they think that's the right direction. I'm going to go this way. Right. And thinking that becomes leadership of in, 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 in actuality, it's just rebellion. Hmm. Right. And so the, the, the last year in particular, seeing where it's not working, where there's times where you need to, um, there's a reason to go status quo on certain things, um, has been a hard lesson for me to go. It's not always the right thing to just automatically react that every idea needs a different response. Um, and I've seen failure in that, where things that, that served me well at times in my career by going and being different. Um, sometimes is, is stupid. Don't do that. Right. <laughs> and, and so I've been learning that lesson the hard way of, of, of trying that playbook and then realizing, oh, that's not working. And so now I'm at this point where I'm trying to guide myself and the team to balance more to say, you know, sometimes the, the reason the majority wants that is because it's the right idea and you don't just have to just automatically go, no, we're going to do it differently mm -hmm. you know, and we're going to go a different direction that you don't have to do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm still in the midst of learning that. So I wouldn't even say it's like a, 
a success on my part, but it is something that's been brought to mind and I'm trying to be more mindful of my own react, my own innate natural reaction to life uh, of going, that's not always right. You, you don't get a ribbon every time you, you're different. And, and that's been hard, you know, because that, that was a thing I thought was unique about me. And you're realizing now that's, that's just stupid sometimes. Right. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm figuring that out. It's interesting that you uh, brought up one of the things that you learned from your mentor at Expedia was the ability to push the status quo and to not be afraid to go a different direction. But now you're learning years later, you've also got to temper that with, yeah, but it's got to be the right time to go a different right. direction. And you've got to kind of sense uh, when it's the right thing to do and when, no, actually status quo is good here. Right. It became over, it, it became overbalanced. It, it became a one trick playbook to say, every time there's an idea, just let's go do it different. Mm -hmm. And that's not right either. And so at the first part of my career was finding out that by by having some moments of of creative difference and exploring was really positive for my career, really positive, happened over and over again of opportunities I was given because you dared to fail or did something different. Now I'm at a stage where I'm, I'm seeing where it's having the opposite effect, where I'm just, it's gratuitous in some way, or I'm just going a different direction and you didn't need to. And, and so, fi yeah, finding that balance of going there's moments for it and, and it can be really beautiful when it's right and it can also just be a pain in the ass when it's wrong <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm i'm in the midst of learning that lesson right now i think but i think that's a great way to say that leadership too is not just you get there and that's it you're right. always learning you're always having to hone hone your craft and hone who you are and really if you're going to be a good leader you're always growing you're always learning right absolutely it's that sort of um honesty with yourself to know, okay, this is what I'm not great at, or this is how I still need to continue to progress in my own personal life and my leadership philosophy. Um, and I think it's admirable that we've got two great leaders in front of us who know that they haven't made it, know that they're not perfect, that you are constantly trying to improve yourselves um, so that you can be effective for those around you. Uh, Chris, what about you? Do you have a failure in your life that you're like, you know what, if that hadn't happened that way, I wouldn't have learned X, Y, Z. Yeah, I think uh, one of my my greatest lessons learned or, or failures was uh, during my, my senior year in college. Uh, I was on a uh, on a team where we're essentially building our senior thesis for the entire entire year, uh, two semesters. And it was my first class uh, for my major. Prior to then, I had just been partying, attending the uh, the core classes. Uh, was put on a team where I was uh, selected to be the team leader. We had to submit our first draft of our thesis, which was about 150 to 200 pages long. So you've got six people doing their portions of the paper. I thought I'd be the cool team leader and, and wait until the very last minute to have everyone submit their, their work to me prior to the, the first uh, uh, submission. And what that, what that caused was uh, everyone sending to me, you know, a couple hours past the deadline, all these different formats, none of the narrative of the thesis um, flowing very well together. Uh, so I was pretty much up all night trying to manipulate the, first and foremost, the formatting. So that just looked like, you know, it was a professional style uh, paper. I uh, didn't even get to editing or, you know, understanding how this flowed together and uh, couldn't couldn't get it printed out or well, I got it printed out, but I couldn't get it bound or anything. So I had to print it out 
And uh, I was, I mean, I worked through the night. So the class was at like nine o'clock in the morning. I showed up, I had this 250 to 200 page paper that was just pushed inside a binder and they wouldn't even fit because there were so many that I printed out and I just felt like such a failure. And so I could have easily changed majors. I could have, um, you know, took a step down on the team and said, I just want to be a contributor and not, not the team leader. And I said, you know, this is, this is a lesson learned right here. So what that entailed is for me to work with my team and set some, some guidelines that we needed to follow and kind of change the format of our, our meetings so that we were doing our editing and um, making sure that the paper flowed together real time versus everyone just submitting their stuff individually. And it, it created a lot more collaboration among the team. We certainly had to, to meet more, uh, but our additional meetings did not add up to, to near as much as that, that single night where I, I worked from about midnight till eight or nine in the morning trying to put this, I mean, I'll call it a piece of crap together that I just, I remember sitting at my desk in that room, just feeling so embarrassed. Like this is, went to the military, now I'm in my senior year, my core class, and this is, uh, this is the type of work I'm doing and I'm responsible. I mean, I could have blamed everybody else. This guy was too late. This girl didn't have the right format, but I just said, they selected me to be the leader and, and I failed to, you know, to, to get the team and guide the team to get this to a state that, that in my mind would be acceptable. And I can't even imagine how disappointed the, uh, the professor was in that work I, I turned in. Luckily enough, everyone, I think uh, all the other teams ran into that same lesson learned. So we got an extension and I was able to uh, evaluate those uh, lessons learned and, and put into action the necessary steps uh, to not place us in that same situation again. Listening to you talk about group projects in school is giving me a lot of anxiety. <laughs> My memories <laughs> of that. taking me back I'm like, I would rather hear about your experience uh, in the military. That would give me less anxiety than hearing your experiences <laughs> with a school project going awry. That's my nightmare. So thank you for the nightmares I'm going to have tonight of my own history. Well, he makes a good point. Let's go back to um, your military service. You served overseas. Um, like Nate said, thank you for your service. How do you think that has really helped you as you're working in a global company, um, having had that experience being overseas and, and interacting with folks from all different cultures and, and backgrounds? Yeah, I I, uh, I don't know if it's unique to my my personality, but I just always had the curiosity to to understand other other cultures. I uh, I grew up a military brat, so I lived three years in in Germany, and I think I always and I even went to German school. Um, I don't, I don't speak German very well. I tried it one time when I, I, uh, I met some new friends out one time and I tried, they were German. So I tried the German and they, uh, laughed at me and said, I sounded like a three-year-old. So I won't try to break any of that uh, out here for our global audience. But, uh, living in Germany, I think I just was always curious and intrigued how different the culture was from, um, the, the U S and being young. I mean, this was just like eye opening because you think you live in a bubble where this is how the world is. And then you get a glimpse and see things are are, are quite different. So when I was in the uh, in the army, I was stationed in Korea. And I mean, my best friend was uh, my, my translator who was actually in the Korean army. They get uh, assigned to the, the U.S. Army for integration purposes and then translation uh, value, too. Uh, and he was my best friend. And, uh, you know, they definitely had a lot of uh, places in uh, Seoul that cater to Westerners. However, I always uh, wanted to go off the beaten path and, you know, I would go to his family and stay. And, uh, uh, you know, it gave me a great glimpse of the, the cultural differences and uh, a lot of respect for those cultural differences. So in my role now, I've, I've led teams in Chennai and Manila 
And so, you know, I don't look at them as being a global or international or anything like that. I just look at them as being people. And then based on, you know, the area of the, the world they were raised and their cultural differences, you know, how can I use that to, to understand how to connect with them and be the best possible boss that I can be? Because what, what I've learned, too, is I feel like the U.S. system is a very, a very favor-based um, professional culture where overseas I see more of a hierarchical based on years of experience and uh, degrees earned and titles and everything. So that was one of my my biggest lessons learned that I had to adjust my style from um, more of the, the U.S. favor-based culture to respecting the the, the hierarchies and uh, the kind of rank stacking that the, um, the, the remote locations that I've, I've worked with. If you have relationships with people, you're able to um, get things done both formally and informally. Um, so, for, for instance, Amari asked me to, to join this podcast. I'm not saying I would have told anyone no, but because Amari asked me, it was a no-brainer. I just said, yeah. He would have I'll, said I'll, no I'll if it was that. you, Nate. If I, if I had asked him, he would have yeah, said, said no. no. Yeah. I, I totally get that. I totally get that. <laughs> And I mean, I think if you just look at your own own jobs and uh, in your relationships at work and see how how you interact with those and uh, how you prioritize things, you'll see a heavy, heavy influence of I need to help this person out or, you know, this 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 person did to me this solid. I'm going to take care of them here. It's just just how things work. I mean, that's why you see a lot of leaders that take their staff from like company to company because there's that trust. There's that familiarity. And if they're being tasked to get a job done and they know the team that can get that done, those people have pref preferential treatment more so than e even some of the more senior people in the company where that new leader may be going to. Gotcha. I want to ask you both about your teams and how you went about building your teams and creating that um, sense of trust, mutual respect, and we're all going towards the same goal. Um, Dan, I know that you've built a really diverse and successful team within product marketing. You're the vice president of product marketing at Genesis. And I'm wondering how you do that. You often uh, get lots of feedback about how your team works together. Um, you have a lot of kind of outside of the industry people on your team. What has uh, been your approach to building a successful team and how do you maintain that? At first, I, it was, uh, if I'm super honest, I think it was intuitive. Um, it was a lot of guessing. And then over time, you started to see patterns emerge of uh, success. And I learned from that. Um, with with my team, I, I wrote a, um, a LinkedIn blog a few years ago. I was looking for a new employee for a job that we had to fill. And I wrote a blog about my team being the island of misfit toys. <laughs> and I actually, we sourced a candidate who was a rock star who just got promoted um, a, a few within a few years. And, and she was a great hire. And, but in that, what I've found to be successful for me is, is thinking of the team as a as a body it's it's like a suit of armor and and there are a, a diver, the diversity for me is around gifting um to so within my team i have people in product marketing i have people who are really passionate about technology they're just tech nerds they come in for the tech right i have people on the team who come in because um they're 
um, more from the industry and they, they're interested in outcomes for customers and they're steeped in either consulting or product management or whatever it is. And then I have others who have a diversity of background when it comes to uh, more general mar marketers, right? Who come from a marketing background, whether it's digital or content or whatever it is. And then I have the unorthodox hires. Well, I have a person on my team who is a professional Shakespeare actor before they started getting grown-up jobs. I have another person who is another actor who's also a professional illustrator on the side. And so you have this weird diversity of these people that need each other, which is what I want. Like they can work independently, it's great, but their best work is when they're working with each other. That someone who's steeped in technology, for instance, will um, create content that is useful, but needs a, a creative, a true creative to kind of put a finishing touch on that. And the work that those two people do together, that, that sum is greater than the parts. And so for me, when I'm looking at the team, it's all about, um, and there's still a bit of it that's intuitive, but I'm always looking at the team to say, I, I categorize as industry experts, technology experts, and creative. And how do we make sure that we're balanced? We don't have too many creatives who don't have enough industry or technology, not too many industry or technology experts, but we don't have enough creative. And I found that it's been highly successful when we have those teams balanced. Um, the second thing that I use that I have found uh, uh, life-changing from a manager standpoint is we use a personality assessment called the Enneagram. And there's a lot written about it. I won't go into it at this point, but um, just using it as a tool to look at the diversity of the team based on personality type. And so you have nine different types. And so I'm also looking at that. I'm not necessarily hiring based on that type, but every person that we have hired, we've asked to take the Enneagram. And so when I'm talking to individuals on the team, you have those categories I mentioned of technologists or industry or creative, whatever it is. But then I'm also thinking about it in terms of personality that you're finding the way I interact with certain personality types needs to change because of their individualism and, and some respond or even work better together based on personality type. And the team has begun to embrace that over the last um, 16 months. And I'm seeing that with a team where when they're interacting with each other, they're more sensitive to a type of personality that you're dealing with, that some need to be approached differently and work differently with others. And so that's been a really, really accidental and helpful tool. Um, and it's just a tool to just help know when I'm talking to you or you or you, I'm, I'm thinking like, okay, there's, a, there's a, a part of it of their personality that I, I should be careful and cautious of how I interact with them based on something like an Enneagram, right? And so it's just a tool, but it's been really helpful for me personally to, to the way that I form a team and engage with the team and, and seeing them as individuals and in, in based on personality. And there's a, an immense diversity that comes when you see people that are individual people, right? And and how you interact with them. So that's the, high, the, the, the that's highest order bit. That's, highest that's order a big bit. idea for me. Dan, you have a really interesting interview process and technique that I'd love you to kind of unpack for us. Um, instead of the kind of traditional coming in, asking the the 
interview questions for, you know, jobs, like we've all been there, uh, you take more of a conversational approach. Uh, you invite them into the living room of your offices and kind of see how they interact with the rest of your team. You joke with them, you kind of test out their sense of humor. And it's kind of like a, a movie director who just takes a potential actor out for dinner as opposed to having them like read a monologue in front of them. And I'm wondering where you got that approach and how you've seen it be effective uh, and building the teams that you've done. So I, 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 I had a um, mentor uh, probably 10 years ago. Um, he, I was at some uh, uh, Starbucks or wherever it was, I don't remember. And he said, Dan, what is the most important part of being a manager? And I was a really new manager at the time. And I started just, um, you know, pontificating, trying to stretch for an answer. And I gave him whatever my answer was. And he said, no. And I was like, well, what is the answer? He said, the most important part of being a manager, the most important part is hiring and firing. That's the most important part of being a manager. And all these years later, I've always taken that to heart, especially the hiring part. So I love hiring people. I love find, trying to crack the code of what, how is that person going to be a new a piece of that suit of armor that's going to help the rest of the team. However, I hate, I hate interviewing. I hate it because it brings out the worst in all of us. We all put on a veneer. Um, we ask stupid questions um, that no matter what, the candidate is wanting a job. So they are going to find a way to twist it. So if I tell you, you know, ask you, what is your least favorable quality? You're going to tell me that I work too hard. I'm I, too focused. I'm too focused. I care too deeply. Right. And and it's both sides, right? We're trying to give you the best view of ourselves and you're trying to give us the best view. So um, in my job, I'm lucky that no one graduates from college with a degree in product marketing. And so therefore you're looking for people that have, as I said earlier, elements that we're needing on the team, whether it's a technologist or a creative or a industry person, whatever it is, right? Software, you know, expert, whatever it is. So in an interview, we'll, we'll get to that like pretty quickly of like, are you smart? Do you care? Right? Are you, do you have a, are you conscious? Um, and so therefore, when we find that person who has those elements, the big thing that we do in interviewing that's been really successful for our team, at least, has been to simply bring them in for a day or two and work with us. And it's a very loose agenda. Uh, we'll bring them into meetings and we will just talk about work. And so we'll do very little of interviewing. We don't ask a lot of questions about, you know, we'll ask about your background, blah, blah, blah. But mostly it's it's for me to gauge and the team to gauge how do they interact with new material that they're not necessarily acquainted with at all. Um, but that time with them over that day or two days, we don't put them through the every 30 minutes, you're going to talk to a new set of people, Right. Um, and by doing that, it's been really helpful for us to get that kind of final, do they want to work with us and are crazy? And do we want to work with them? Um, if we've checked those boxes of you, you've got the intelligence and, you, and you're conscientious and you want to work at a place like this, that's the last element. And, and so far, I mean, we've had a real, we've been really blessed in the sense that we've had a super low attrition rate on our team of people who, when they come in, they, they want to be with the team. And so I, I would recommend for anybody listening, if you're in an opportunity to be able to 
bring people in and actually just work with them. And even if they're, they're going to be quiet most of the time, but they're going to observe and they're going to put in thoughts and you're going to get a sense of how they work. And with that kind of final, is this a person that, that we want to work with has been really, really helpful over the last four years in, in that kind of interview style. Yeah. I want to pivot over to you. Same question for you, Chris, you and I have had conversations about, um, hiring and looking for talent. And one of the things you've said in the past was, you know, when they're coming in and they're putting their application in, it's kind of a given that they can do the day-to-day and the tactical. Um, You've mentioned how much more important it is to ask those questions to kind of see, are they strategic? Are they able to see the forest for the trees? So kind of want to talk a little bit more about that and your philosophy on hiring and not necessarily firing, but more on the hiring side. Yeah, and I, I'll have to admit most of my hiring is going to be biased towards the the project management role. So I really put a lot of emphasis on the resume uh, and some of the traits I like to see in the resume. You know, are they continually advancing through their career, or have they just sat in one role for a long time? Um, you know, I see if they do things outside of the norm, uh, advanced degrees, uh, certifications, uh, that inquisitiveness places. to learn. Absolutely. The aptitude. I would say the aptitude to learn mm-hmm. because uh, they may not have the skills that I need coming in the door, but I I place less emphasis on the skills uh, and place more emphasis on the level of ownership and uh, the type of character that, I, that I'm meeting, especially with project management. It's not an automated role because there's going to be various challenges, uh, relationship challenges, personality challenges. Um, you know, you're going to have to work through various processes. You're going to have to work with extended team members, both on your team and, and the customer team. So I placed a, a high value on someone that demonstrates a high level of ownership, because if uh, that project manager is taking a high level of ownership for what they're responsible to deliver, they will keep a pulse on these things. They will be receptive to guidance. And, um, you know, I feel that puts that type of trait is probably what I value the most from a project manager, uh, assuming they have. Uh, you know, the appropriate educational or similar experience that shows that they're capable, have the aptitude of learning the different methodologies that we do, the nuances of the uh, systems that they're deploying. Uh, you know, I, I vet that first. And then, you know, there's going to be a, another element that I place as equal value is, would I want to work with this person? Would I Do I look at this person as a leader? If I'm on their project team, would I look up and respect what they say? Uh, certainly from an interviewing standpoint, I definitely do uh, put them through some some drills of show me how you would project manage a um, building a pool on top of the uh, the Planet Hollywood in Vegas. And sh- what does that entail? I just want to see how they think through it. Like, I don't have any idea how to put a pool on top of Planet Hollywood in Vegas. Um, I might have been up there a couple of times, but I don't know how to build it, right? <laughs> so I, but I know how my thought process would be and how that would correlate to what they're responsible for delivering. So I, I do like to see that their thought process is is going to um, flow in a way that they're thinking through and looking forward. That's the most uh, impactful thing as a project manager. You don't mind those those lessons learned. You just want to mitigate the impact to, to your customer and your team as you're uh, um, you're trying to push forward with your responsibilities. So Chris and I couldn't be any more different in how we interview. I think so. I I was I, I liked how you did it, but I mean we have two very different disciplines too. I mean you mm-hmm. have more of an art artistic type of thing where you need that mental freedom for your people to 
um, you know, be their best. And I think with the project management role, you need a level of uh, uh, ownership, uh, authority, um, and and very analytical because it is kind of connecting the dots and uh, you know collaborating and getting the team going all in one direction. Certainly, some artistic um, w um, styles work at times, uh, but I mean that's more I would say the exception to the role. And I'm looking for more of the people that have that. The, the capabilities that I just outlined, that, that ownership, the leadership capabilities, relationship building aspects, appreciate different uh, aspects of, you know, people with their education background or uh, where, they, where they've grown up or how they've grown up. I like how, um, you know, you have the team that's built of, of different pieces so that we all learn and just, you know, we're talking about this as a very corporate focused thing, but I mean, we're, we're also just living life, right? That, mm -hmm. doesn't, that doesn't stop. It's not home life, work life. It's all life. It's all how we choose to spend what we've been given to do. So I want to make sure that, um, you know, we just have the right types of people to the team that can make the experience of uh, being on the team a very pleasurable and, uh, and growth building type of uh opportunity so i'm right then is what you're saying <laughs> we were hoping to uh generate an argument i was honestly <laughs> trying to incorporate how i could uh <clears throat> do like act out this scene and uh and boys in the hood right? <laughs> <laughs> no i one of the things i love is that both of you are successful in your own right but by having uh different approaches uh and i think that's fascinating so there's no one right way to do it. It's just what works for you. And also, Chris, what you brought up was interesting is that you're just looking for different things in people than Dan might be looking for and how to go about sussing that out when you're meeting somebody for the first time in an interview process. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. This has been great with all the stories and all the insights. And we definitely want to keep this conversation going. So I invite everyone to tune in for the next episode, where what are we going to be discussing some more now, Nate? We're going to be talking about interview techniques and what these two guys look for and possible candidates for being a, a member of their team. And also um, a work-life balance. Uh, both of these gentlemen are fathers, and so we're going to talk about what it means to be uh, a father at home and a leader in the workplace. So tune in next time. And take a moment with us.